Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 217. On today's show, we talk about prehistoric Puerto Ricans, a bone punch board, and an underwater cemetery. Let's dig a little deeper and hopefully find some more bodies, clothes, and gravestones. (laughs) That's the cycle of life. (laughs) Welcome to the Archaeology Show. Hello. Got a news episode for you? Yes. From not stupid hot Palm Springs anymore. (laughs) I know, right? It's actually really nice. I was sitting outside working today taking advantage of these not too hot sunshine this is what we were hoping for when we decided to come here (laughs) this is what it normally is yeah until like august yeah yeah until later in the summer then it's 106 every day yeah exactly yeah the park we're at actually closes in a couple of weeks because like nobody wants to be here yeah why would you come here in the summer (laughs) i mean if you live here that's one thing but like visiting here in an rv doesn't seem like the best choice when it's super hot out (laughs) not so much no no but visiting the island of Puerto Rico seemed like a good idea for the last, like, almost 3,000 years. Yeah. I would yeah. love to visit the island of Puerto Rico for sure. I know. Never it's been. Amazing. Yeah. In fact, the article that we're going to talk about here, well, we'll get into it, but the first the first line is just, like, riddled with controversy for me, and I'm surprised they didn't get into it. But anyway, let's talk about that Oh, in a great. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, this article is called Oldest Human Remains from Puerto Rico contradict idea of simple island nomads. Yes. And that was published in Science. And they also did us the lovely favor of linking to the PLOS One article, which is where the actual like scientific study was published. Right. Yeah. So there's some good links there for you to go check it out. I'd say look at the pictures, but there's not like a huge amount to look at because, you know, yeah. putting pictures of human remains into articles is not really like the thing to do for a lot of reasons. So, yeah, they don't they don't have any of those, fortunately. Putting them in the back of your car is also not the thing to do. But again, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, we will get to Let's that. Do a little I was like, what are you what are you objecting to in this article? <laughs> but now I remember. <laughs> why, why don't you give us a little history of Puerto Rico first? Yeah. I, so I, I didn't know anything about Puerto Rico. I don't know about you. I just had not ever like considered the prehistory of Puerto Rico at yeah, all. So really. so we wanted to do like a quick like recap of it. So the oldest evidence that we have is from about 4,000 years ago and it is the Ortuarid culture which is from the Orinoco region in South America which is like roughly the Venezuela northern Colombia area they arrived to the island approximately 4,000 years ago they kind of jumped down island chains basically until they finally got there Mm -hmm. and then 
they were there for a while, occupied the island, and many thousands of years later, around 430 to 250 BCE, the Saladoid culture arrived also from the same region in South America. Okay. So they kind of followed the paths of their ancestors, hopping these island chains and eventually reaching Puerto Rico. Did you read if there was evidence that like there was a gap in people there, or is it just like continuous influx i think it was pretty well i i think it was a gap like the first guys got there and then that culture flourished there for a while not necessarily with an influx of new right people and then a distinctly different culture arrived that is related to these saladoid peoples so those guys were there for a while and they were there when between the 7th and 11th centuries, CE, the Taino culture, developed. And they went on to dominate the island. They were there when Columbus and the Spanish arrived in 1493. And they were a group of like 30 to 60,000 people, basically. Like 30 people to 60,000 people? That's a pretty big 30,000 to 60,000 <laughs> people. <laughs> there were between zero and a lot of people there. <laughs> That's that's the official estimate. You're so helpful. Anyway, (laughs) so they were in conflict with raiding Carib people from the Antilles Islands. So at the time that the Spanish arrived. And so that combined with the European diseases that were brought by the Spanish basically caused that population to decline. I don't think they really put up much of a a fight when the Spanish sort of took over the island and... It really became like an outpost for Spanish conquering that occurred into the rest of the islands and probably into Mexico as well. It was sort of like that first stop for ships that were coming coming in from Spain. But we can see the DNA from these people in modern descendants yeah. in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so they definitely like had an impact on, you know, the descendants on the island today and they also, I love this, they give us the word for hammock. Nice. <laughs> so that that came from the Taino people. So hammock is literally a word for, like, like, like net between the trees. Yeah, like like cord or string or ropes mm. hung between trees, basically. I wonder what came first because hammocks kind of look like fishing nets. Right. They just gave us the name. They did yeah. not give us the thing. Yeah. <laughs> the thing developed independently in many different like oh, coastal cultures around okay. the world. But the word hammock came from mm-hmm. this these people. And it's because there's a Spanish word for it, like hamoca or something like that. And that became the English word. I want a hamoca right now. <laughs> I might be wrong about that. So Spanish speakers don't crucify me. But there is like a Spanish word that became the English word. And that's where we get it from. All right. So all of these different groups that occupied the islands over these many, you know, these 4,000 years or so, they had been thought of as like roaming nomadic fisher type of cultures. And it was kind of presumed that they were not like super complex societies. They were Mm -hmm. just like nomadic hunter gatherer following the food. Yeah. That type of thing. Yeah. So that evidence of their nomadic lifestyles is really what they, they got from the limited archeological record on the Island. It's just that we don't know a whole lot about them. And this is what the conclusion was made yeah the we'll talk about it in a minute but the the preservation there is not great for archaeology so there's just not a lot of good sites that have a lot of data associated with them and that's why this article is important and the actual journal article that it's based on which was published in plus one it's open source and Mm -hmm. is linked in our show notes Mm -hmm. so that's cool but you know this i was getting to the i mean to me something that i'm surprised they even wrote about but it's the first line in the article is directly 
Over two days in 2019, <laughs> yeah. William Pessel drove a truck containing 35 carefully packed boxes from Virginia <laughs> to Florida. At night, the University of Miami bioarchaeologist brought the boxes inside his hotel room for safekeeping. This was no ordinary cargo. Inside were the oldest human remains yet found in Puerto Rico. Okay, okay, let's give some context to this. <laughs> so, so the original excavations were carried out for a construction company in the 90s. That company went out of business, and the guy who was in charge of the site ended up with these artifacts, these remains, that he just kind of didn't know what to do with yeah and it was in the 90s so i don't think that there was the laws were as good or as strict around what to do with it maybe puerto rico wasn't stepping in with what to do i'm not really sure what fell through right there but basically this guy daniel koski karelia ended up with these boxes of remains and he i mean to his credit (laughs) he just packaged them up well and preserved them well in boxes that were in his house. Yeah. Well, three decades later, he teamed up with William Pessel, who's the guy from the beginning of the article, who's a bioarchaeologist, and he is the one who wanted to re-examine these remains and see what we can learn from them. So in this article, <laughs> and we can talk about our opinions about that, but it seems like they like really tiptoed around who did what and what they should have done or not have done. And it sounds like everybody agrees this original guy should never have left Puerto Rico with human remains that belong to the Puerto Rican government, essentially. And But at the same time, he did such a great job of making sure that they were protected and preserved and now can be studied today. It's like people don't want to fault him for it too much. So the, in the article, anyway, they just kind of tiptoed around it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think he should be given more? Well, uh, there was. it sounded like there, he didn't have any other options, right? Yeah, that's Maybe, the way they framed it in the article. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he probably should have talked to the government beforehand, but it sounded like there were no other options, really. Yeah. And, I mean, guess to everybody's credit, they're not losing their minds over this, and they're saying... You know, get your analysis done. Yeah. Do your thing because mm-hmm. this is where you're at um, in at the University of uh, Miami in Florida. Well, and, actually, he's going on from there to Puerto Rico or has gone on well, from there. And that's what I said. Yeah. They, they said in the article that when when you're done with this, basically bring them back. Yeah. And they know, will stay in Puerto Rico. And they will stay in Puerto Rico. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's one Puerto Rican archaeologist in the article is quoted as saying, you know, they never should have left in the first place. Yeah, so that's as yeah. close as they're getting to, like, condemning the actions of the the person in the right. 90s. Well, that's as close as the article, article. author of this. Yes, the, <laughs> the, ar- the article. author of the article is getting at that. But Yeah, she may not have, you know, <laughs> gone deeply into that. Who knows? Yeah, but. yeah. I think it is tricky because you yeah. have to be happy that there's something to study, but also, yeah. like maybe that should have been done right, right. in the first place. I, right. I feel very torn about it. Anyway, so that's the drama behind the remains and how yeah. they got to where they were and why they're being studied today. Yeah, so let's talk about the site. It's a site known as Cabo Rojo, and it was in southwestern Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Again, 1993. There were the remains of five individuals found, along with tools, food remains, and other artifacts, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And and this is kind of amazing in this area and, and part of the reason why the archaeological record is is so poor at least from a human remains standpoint mm-hmm. is because it's such a hot humid climate that bones and more than likely wood and other stuff too anything organic really yeah just deteriorates really quickly yeah. so there's just not a lot of burials that they've seen in yeah. excavations on this island so in fact less than 20 burials even exist from this entire time period yeah totally because the bones are well 
bones. <laughs> and there were other remains with the bones, too. So I'm not sure yeah. exactly what they used here. Yeah, but they did some radiocarbon dating, so carbon-14 dating. Mm-hmm. And that revealed that the five individuals in particular lived between approximately 1900 BCE and 800 BCE, which is... That's a huge spread, it's right? It's a huge spread for yeah. carbon dating. Yeah. Yeah. So I do, and I think this is, again, going back to the whole, like... 30 years ago, guy yeah. disappeared with remains in the night or something kind yeah. of shady like that. But I don't know how much context they have about the the excavation itself, how close well, these burials were together, the association between yeah. them, you know? And here's the thing. Carbon dating wasn't brand new in 1993, but it was still pretty new for archaeology, mm-hmm. right? So collection methods, especially early construction collection methods in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Section 106 still holds in Puerto Rico. It's a I think so. It's a territory, territory yeah. of the United States. Yeah, so yeah. Section 106 is the law that defines the mandatory, basically cultural exploration yeah. of sites that are going to be you know, have a federal action against them. So yeah. this construction company, it doesn't really say what they were constructing. It does not. So mm-hmm. they may not have been required to do a study like that. Yeah. But to their credit, there was an archaeological excavation done. So I guess there's that. Yeah. But... So that's probably why the, the radiocarbon dating is like not super great. Yeah. Because was it contaminated? Was yeah. it, you know, how do we even trust it, those dates? It but does make you wonder how much trust you can put in those yeah. dates. Yeah. Another cool thing is, again, the science of this whole thing is pretty neat. You can look at the nitrogen and carbon isotopes in bones to learn about the diet. Yeah. And what they found by studying that is that they ate a mix of seafood, land-based animals, and potentially maize, which is, you know... I mean, you would think that would be fairly obvious on Puerto Rico, but we have <laughs> we have evidence for it. Yeah. It also makes me think that like the ice cream I had last night is in my bones as like some sort of isotope that somebody's <laughs> gonna be like this fatty. This guy. Like, this was, guy. He was eating some ice cream. This guy. <laughs> ice cream and coffee. That's literally what your bones is made of. Oh, I don't yeah. think so. But the the maze in particular is interesting. And it's one of those things that's helping deconstruct the preconceived notions. Yeah. Because maize is, it's like corn, right? And yeah. it's the kind of thing that you domesticate in to get something that is edible, probably. So it, it shows that they might have been experimenting with domestication. Mm-hmm. Either way, they clearly had a very diverse diet, which indicates that they might have been a more complex society. And the other thing that sort of contributes to that, too, is that these remains span 500 to 1,000 years. And so... One reason why that time span might be so large is that maybe they were coming back to this place, like different groups, different nomadic groups came back to the same place to, to bury their dead. So I mean, if you have a touchstone, like a place that you always go back to, it kind of indicates a slightly more complex society. Yeah, I'm not buying that. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm not buying it because uh, unless we unless they dig up the whole island or that whole area, if that were actually true, then they would have thousands of bodies there. Like, why would there only be five? Like, they, yeah. you would you bury, bury somebody in, you know, and then 200 years later, you're like, hey, didn't we bury Fred back there? <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah, because, like, the flip side of the argument is that this just happens to be a really nice place to bury humans for whatever reason. And other humans later down the road looked at it and saw the same well, features for and, what they were, you know? And here's the thing. Puerto Rico's not a very big island. So if people live there continuously, wouldn't kind of just like anywhere be a good place to bury somebody? <laughs> you think the I whole think island would be littered with bodies yeah. if people lived there that long? I don't know. Again, you know? it goes back to questions with the original excavation. Like, was there more area to be excavated that would fill in those time gaps with more burials, but they got a building put over them or a road or something, and now we don't have access to them? I, I don't I don't have any more history about what that construction looked like, you know? Yeah. yeah. I suppose the only thing we can say with confidence is that they weren't running around that island naked. 
much like the people of Spain 39,000 years ago. <laughs> Back in a minute. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to episode 217 of the Archaeology Show. And we are talking about ancient tailors. This article is from the Smithsonian. And we have a link in the show notes. We also have a link to the open access article from Science Advances, which is super cool. Yeah, another good yeah. one where they actually link to the source article. So that was great. Yeah, for sure. And there's You're, good pictures, too. Definitely look at the pictures yeah. in the Smithsonian article, but also in the open access one, there's even mm -hmm. more photos. So you can really see what they're talking about. Yeah, the Smithsonian article really only has the one, which is actually... The most important like, one. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah, it's right on the top. Yeah. But anyway, this article is titled, This 39,600, that's oddly specific, year old bone <laughs> may have been used by prehistoric tailors. Yeah. And you might wonder, how could they know? Yeah. <laughs> So the bone fragment is from a site that is nearly 40,000 years old, of course, and it has puncture holes in it. And they think that those puncture holes might have been used, basically this piece of bone might have been used to stabilize leather when somebody was punching holes into it yeah. in order to potentially then sew a garment together. Now, you might have heard in all of that that there's a lot of assumptions being made here. Yeah, we'll, I don't buy it and I'll yeah, tell you why. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's first talk about the artifact itself. Okay. So it was discovered at a site in Catalonia, Spain, which is about 12 and a half miles south of Barcelona. It's a Barcelona. Bar <laughs> How did I not know you were going to say that? <laughs> Barcelona. <laughs> Pretentious. Anyway, so the theory is, like I said, they could hold the leather over the bone and basically stabilize it. And then they're taking a chisel, which would have probably been some kind of lithic or antler or whatever. They tried a bunch of different things, and we'll mm -hmm. get to why they decided it was probably flint. But you can use that to, like punch the holes through the the leather or the hide or whatever it is. 
So I got to describe the artifact here real quick. Yeah. It's about 10 centimeters long, give or take, which is about six inches or so. Mm -hmm. I didn't actually do that math, but it's got to be around there somewhere. Yeah. And it's a flat piece of bone. So this would have been from, you know, some sort of mammal. I'm not really sure what it is. They they say? Yeah, they did. They said it is something either bovid. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Which would be. Cowish. Yeah, but they didn't have yeah. cow then, so it was oh, yeah. antelope, right. sheep, buffalo, or maybe even horse. Well, I was thinking more like where the bone is. Oh, it's a it hip bone. Like a, okay, they, hip. They, they think it's hip bone. Okay, hip I was bone. thinking hip or scapula. Yeah, yeah, hip from either one way, of those. Either way, it's flat, and there's a line of indentations on it, a clear line of indentations. And if you really did put a piece of fabric on that, and you punched a hole in every single one of those places where there's, in the fabric, where every one of the places where there's uh, indentation on this bone, Notice I said indentation, not a hole all the way through the bone. No, it's just no, an indentation. Just the indentation. I'm thinking like these hides are actually really thick. Yeah. They're not super thin. They're really thick. And you're laying the hide on here. What are you doing? Like move it around until you until you feel the indentation? Like well, why wouldn't it be further or deeper in? Okay, hold on. That's what I thought too, but I don't think that that's how they mean. I don't think that the, the piece of bone is a template for where to put the holes. They think that they just put the bone underneath whatever they're trying to punch through. And then looking at the leather, they're like, okay, I want a line of holes here. So they went bam, 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 right. bam. And that created the indentation. Well, that's what I'm talking about. So this was used once? Yeah. Once or a couple times. So it looks like once. Going on, continuing with your description, there's 28 puncture marks, and they're in two distinct groups. The first one is the ones that you're talking about, which is 10, like remarkably similar, as they call it, punctures in a row, indicating that they probably were made by the same tool. And then the second group is a group of 15 that are not aligned, basically. Mm -hmm. They're not perfectly together. But they are similar. And then there's a there's three extras that are smaller, isolated, and not really part of either of those two groups. So it's not as if these marks on the bone were something that they were trying to line up the leather with. They couldn't no. see through. They couldn't. None of that. I don't it, think it that. wasn't it wasn't like a template. It made it so that the tool that they were punching the leather with wouldn't hit their leg or their or the table or whatever it is that they were doing it on. It was just a stabilizer on the backside. I get all that. I'm just floored by the, the apparent disposable nature of this. I would have thought yeah. they would have used the same piece if it worked well over and over and over again, but it's clear they only used it maybe two or three times mm-hmm. and or they used it once and just kept slipping out of their knee and they had to re- reorient it or something like that. But I guess if it was something that was relatively disposable, that would make sense because they're eating meat a lot. They're eating meat a lot. And they have a lot. high access to this number of bones. They do. And there's no need to carry something like that around with them. Because my other thought was how often are they even making a garment or clothing, yeah. right? Like I'm guessing that was a a couple times a year sort of situation rather yeah. than, a, you know, depending on a person. I mean, they called him a tailor in the the article to like capture minds and imaginations. Yeah, but it would have been just like anybody. It would have just been like dude or woman who needed to needed a cape. I you would, know, well, I, would, I don't know about a cape. <laughs> probably a pair of shoes. Those probably maybe, wore out. Yeah, maybe. something to cover yeah. your feet. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would guess this would be used for. I yeah, mean, obviously, sure. clothing as well. We don't. We'll talk about clothing in a minute, mm-hmm. but I guess. I would assume that everybody knew how to repair their own things. Yeah. And and even create their own things. Yeah. Because it would just be knowledge you had to have to live back then. Yeah. It mm-hmm. wouldn't make a lot of sense 40,000 years ago for you to divide that labor because they, they yeah. weren't necessarily living in stratified, structured no. communities. Like big enough groups yeah. for somebody to specialize in being a clothing right. maker. Like not yet. That's nope. This was too early for that. Maybe Joe or Jane Caveman was a little better at it than somebody yeah. else. Yeah. You know, so they're like, hey, you do this because you're, you're awesome at it. Yeah. And that's probably how specialization was formed. Mm-hmm. But 
I just I'm really just surprised by the what seems like a, a, a consumable item and maybe it's something that was found and used expediently just because they were like hey I need to fix my shoe mm-hmm. and there's some animal remains I'm yeah. gonna go ahead and do this real quick yeah for I sure was found with other stuff but I, I wonder if that temporary nature of that site yeah and I don't think we've said what the name of something like this is, but it's called a punch board, basically. And I, I think that people that work with leather and really tough materials like yeah. that still use a similar type of thing, a, a backing, essentially, to catch the sharp implement as you're punching holes into leather or whatever. Which sends my mind into whole other realms of discovery, too, because it makes me think stuff like, like they're just like, oh, yeah, it's a punch board. Sure, <laughs> no big deal, right? Right. Yeah, it makes me think like, how many times, even in the same area, how many times was stuff like this invented over and over and over oh, again? For sure. Because there's yeah. only one really great way to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like somebody was trying to punch holes in leather and they stabbed themselves in the leg a few times before yep. they stuffed something under there and said, holy crap, that works better. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then that knowledge was possibly lost, mm-hmm. you know, and somebody else had to figure it out. And it's just like thousands of times across the planet, this was probably figured out. Yeah, The Native sure. Americans had lots of hide-based products. Mm-hmm. They had to have done something like this as well. They must have. And I think we do have examples of this from more modern yeah. groups. And the thing that interests me the most is from a, like, function perspective. And they did do this. They, they did try this through, like, some experimental archaeology, which we'll get to in a minute. But I think like having it be a piece of bone be what is catching the tool as it comes through the leather mm-hmm. is is perfect because a rock is too hard, you know, like it'd probably yeah. hurt your hand or break or whatever. The bone would have some give. Yeah, bone has give. Wood might be nice too, but mm-hmm. maybe wood is too soft depending on what is around. So yeah. anyway, I just I love the idea of like trying a bunch of different materials and settling on, you know, it an antelope hip bone being the right. best choice. It's, it's really cool. So just really quick, I, I love talking about clothing in general, as you know, and it fits into that missing majority category of artifact, which is part of the reason why this article really jumped out at me. We just don't have it. It degrades. It goes away. It's gone. And most artifacts like this are. Really, we just don't have them from this long ago. I know how much you like talking about clothing. The uh, <laughs> Target fashion show a few nights ago was... <laughs> Exemplifying that fact. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not talking about clothing for me, but I do like to make clothing. You know, <laughs> I'm a knitter and a sewer and all that. But <laughs> sewer. <laughs> well, I have a sewing machine. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> anyway, so so these these things, we know that they had them. They had to have clothing in particular because it was so cold. They had to have. Yeah. But we don't have direct evidence going back 39,000 years. It just is gone. So Yeah, that and, stuff doesn't last underground. No, it doesn't. And just for context again, the oldest known fragments of fabric are like 10,000 years old. Which is still so pretty impressive. That, yeah, and yeah. more than likely, I don't know anything about it, but more than likely found in a cave environment Probably. or something like that. Cave or somewhere yeah. arid where it could right. preserve properly. Dry um, and cold. Yes, exactly. But here... Certainly not. And being this old at 39,000 years, definitely not. We don't have any kind of fabric. So we're just sort of left to draw assumptions from the surrounding implements when we find them. Right. Yeah, they kind of, again, go to the same realms that uh, pretty much every researcher goes to when they see (laughs) something that, I don't know, is either uniform or different or they can't explain it, something like that. But Mm -hmm. this one group of 
of impressions that or whole or marks, I guess, that is very, very obvious on the bone. Yeah. What I like is they they look square, so they were punched with a, an implement that had some sort of a, a defined end shape on it, right? Mm-hmm. And also they're of almost uniform distance apart. Yeah. Yeah. What's that for? Yeah. Well, all that means that it must have been something and so or somebody was just really good at making seams <laughs> yeah. you know i mean well, it didn't have to be like they're they're speculating on what is he used for you know recording something a certain number of times or doing something like that but why would they have to put them so evenly spaced right you know yeah that's why they they sort of disregarded the the thought that it could be like art maybe or some sort of recording method for something Mm -hmm. counting something maybe but they've they sort of rejected all that because the rest of the bone is not manipulated at all yeah and they then like special yeah exactly so they wanted to test the theory that maybe it was for punching holes in leather and they did that by basically reproducing this with a similar bone and a piece Mm -hmm. of leather and they tried a variety of things including antler bone horn Stone tools. They tried all of that to see what would make the holes that they were seeing in the the actual artifacts. Yeah. And the flint tool that they tried was the one was it made remarkably similar holes. Yeah. Punches, punctures, I guess, in the in the experimental setting. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I like where they're going with this. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's still, really still a little bit skeptical because it does kind of seem like yeah. They're drawing conclusions where they're like, oh, look, I can make that, too. And like made they did it. But that doesn't mean it's the only way it could have happened or the only reason it could have happened. So I would definitely say this is one thing that could have produced those types of marks. And that's one thing it could have been used for. But there could have been completely different things that we don't even conceive of. Our brains can't even handle, you know, of how they would have used this. Yeah, there could have been other reasons and you certainly shouldn't stop on just one. But I think without any more artifacts that look like this, it's going to be very hard to draw any more conclusions. All we can do is have our best guess, which is as best guesses go. I think that this is a a good one. Right. Indeed. Okay. well, we're going to go from there to a cemetery that's underwater with a hospital in Florida because pretty much all of Florida is going to be underwater at some point and this has just started early. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the archaeology show and now we're going to talk about you know the topic that I feel like in our lifetimes is going to start getting more and more prevalent. Hey we were in Florida looking underwater. (laughs) If you haven't seen the show Extrapolations on Apple TV Plus yet it's about climate change in each episode over like eight or nine episodes takes place like a decade apart. I think the last episode takes place in 2070. Mm -hmm. But it's about dramatic climate change and like in the first episode it's like 2030 and Florida's already got massive controls because everything's underwater. (laughs) Yeah, like southern Florida specifically. And we we know because we worked on that side in Miami and we were pumping out water 24-7 once we got not even that far down. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we would, before we got the pump going, we would show up in the morning and our entire, like, the entire area that we work in will be full of water and we'd have right. to wait for the water to get pumped out. So. Or when whoever was supposed to go fill the pump generator with gas didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Then we also woke up with, uh, you know, 10 feet of water in our excavation yeah, site. Which I know we've mentioned this before, but can you believe that part of our job was getting up at one in the morning to go put gas in a generator? Like, that's insane when I think about it now. I would yeah. definitely not do that. Can you believe that for some reason? I never did that. 
You didn't? I thought you did it with me. I, I wouldn't do it by myself. So I think you were my companion one Maybe. time. I just don't remember doing it very often. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was spread out. Like everybody had a different yeah. a different turn. But anyway. Well, <laughs> anyway, Florida is much, much of Florida, especially central and southern Florida, is really, really close to sea level. Mm-hmm. Like within, you know, three to 10 feet. Yeah. Right. It's not very, very much. Yeah. And you go underground and a lot of if not all of Florida, again, central to southern Florida, is basically limestone. Yeah. And limestone's incredibly porous, and it is just already super saturated with water. Yeah. And because of that, if you dig down just a little bit, you hit water. I remember shovel testing in Florida near Lake Okeechobee and then in some other areas of Florida where I've worked. I mean, you dig down a meter, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a little over three feet with your shovel and you're already hitting water, Yeah, you know, in your sandy unit there. Yeah, so for sure. Y- you really couldn't do a whole lot because of the water. Yeah. And, and this site in particular that we're about to talk about is actually at Dry Tortugas National Park, which is an island off the coast of Florida. So all of the problems that Florida has as far as not problems, but like the geography of Florida and being at sea level, you know, it's even worse, basically, at Dry yeah. Tortugas. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a whole series of islands that this stuff was built on to begin with. So. Yeah. But first, the article is called A Grave Under the Ocean. Team finds what could be submerged hospital off Florida Keys. And it's from the Idaho Statesman, which is actually a pretty decent resource. I know. I, seriously, I think we've pulled several articles from them. And they, they just a lot. they are really good at covering interesting archaeology news stories. It's yeah. really cool that they've dedicated a little corner of their publication <laughs> to that. <laughs> Well, they're not stupid. What makes them money, even though because nobody's buying papers, is clicks. Yeah, true. And the more articles you can write, the more clicks you yeah, get. Yeah, they definitely, along with the big ones like Smithsonian mm-hmm. and National Geographic, like these guys are kind of up there as far as breaking this kind of news. Yeah, or sharing sure. this kind of news, maybe not breaking it, but. So archaeologists found a submerged gravestone off the coast of the Dry Tortugas National Park in Florida. Actually, I guess it is technically part of Dry Tortugas because Dry Tortugas is approximately 70 miles west of Key West, and it's mostly water. There are seven small islands and then other islands that have since disappeared into the ocean, which is one of the reasons why this grave is underwater. Yeah, it's a combination of sand climate change mm-hmm. and hurricanes and, and inclement weather and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is why a lot of these islands are now underwater. And things just shift just in this shift. area. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure that that's like unnatural right, for right. that to have happened. It's just, it just shifted over time. I'm sure other ones have popped up too. It's kind of the same idea, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we went and put a whole bunch of big heavy buildings on some of these things. which probably helped destabilize them a little bit. True. You true, know? true. And yeah. the fort that's there now is a massive fort. Yeah. It's that's huge. on there. Yeah. And you it can only huge. get to it by boat or seaplane, which is really cool. Yeah. That is yeah. I've always wanted to go there. And, you know, we're like, we're such national park junkies, but. Well, that'd be a stamp to get. <laughs> it would be. But you can't get there unless you get the little like ferry boat thing that goes out there. And it is booked for like months in advance. Remember, yeah. we tried to go when we were in the Keys. We were going to just like pop down for the day and we couldn't even get a seat on the boat. No, so. and we looked at seaplane and it was like three to four hundred bucks a piece. Yeah. And you spend the day out there, too, because they, yeah. they drop you off in the morning and pick you up in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely a unique place to visit, and we'll get there one day. That's much yeah. with the RV. Yeah, I know. And the, the their part of it is Fort Jefferson, which is on yeah. Garden Key, and that is the largest of this little island chain there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fort was built in the 19th century, actually. Yeah, and it's one of the largest 19th century forts. Like you said, the, the place is massive. Mm-hmm. So what happened is that there was a park ranger who was flying over shallow water, in a plane, obviously, in the area. And he basically, like, saw something that looked like 
right angles and it caught his eye because it wasn't it wasn't right it wasn't the right shape to be natural to that yeah. area and he was like what is this and so they went searching and found that it was a headstone nice and so far they found just the one and it belongs to a man named John Greer who died November 5th 1861 yeah they actually have records and they show the records in the article here with John Greer's line highlighted with that typical, like, 1800s writing that's impossible the script, to script, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, I, I don't even know how they wrote so perfectly. I have such bad chicken scratch. I'm like, I could never have such nice, beautiful, flowing well, lines. It's because they wrote deliberately. Yeah, true, right? and it was like, slow, and it was purposeful. Yeah, they weren't, like, cranking it out, and yeah. they probably had to dip their pen and their quill in the thing every yeah. once in a while. They didn't have ballpoint pens. For sure. So, you know, it, it took a while to actually write that, but... Yeah. Yeah, uh, team of underwater archaeologists from the park found and documented the gravestone and it was made of a material called i'm gonna call it gray wacky but <laughs> gray, i think it's gray whack <laughs> probably but i like gray wacky gray whack or gray wake it's uh, the or, last yeah. part is w-a-c-k-e i actually uh-huh. never heard that term before i hadn't either yeah, yeah. Um, but it's actually the same kind of stone material they used to build the first floor of fort jefferson it looks like some kind of weird concrete amalgamate sort of thing yeah maybe there's crushed up seashell or something in it i'm not well, really sure not, but yeah i don't know if it's concrete because it's carved it's like rock oh yeah true yeah, i'm not actually sure to be honest with you yeah. it, it does say in the article though that the headstone was carved it specifically says that yes it was carved into that sort of typical headstone shape yeah and then it was inscribed it again in that lovely like <laughs> scrolly 19th century script with his name and date of death which is how we know who it is and when he died yeah there could be a lot more nearby because the evidence, the historical evidence, says that there was a lot going on back then. Yeah. And there was many, many outbreaks over the years that this fort was in in use and people were there of yellow fever mm-hmm. and some other stuff. Because there's a lot of mosquitoes down there. And yeah. sometimes it would just like, there would be outbreaks. And in order to quarantine people, they actually put them on some of these some of these outlying islands from the fort. Mm-hmm. And I think there is evidence that a hospital was on one of those like documentary evidence that yeah. there was a hospital. They definitely know that the, some of these outlier islands were used as quarantine hospitals. Mm-hmm. So that's why they either think there's a hospital nearby or they have other actual physical as evidence. They didn't, they didn't get more specific in the article. But they are interested in knowing, in addition to John Greer, who else might be buried there. And they are working to find out more about John Greer. All they know is that line from that, that book that said yeah. he was a laborer. That's really all they know about him. So they're just, you know, doing that history thing and trying to figure out who else could have been there. Yeah, and since this was a military fort, like I said, there are some records here that we can look back and yeah, uh, and see. The fort was in operation until 1873, and then again as a military hospital from 1890 to 1900. Mm-hmm. And it was actually used as a military prison during the Civil War. Yeah, so. I think the primary use for it in yeah. was as a military prison. So you can imagine that prisons need a lot of infrastructure to run properly, right? So you've got the prisoners, yeah. but then you have all the people supporting the infrastructure for the prisoners. So you end up with a lot of people, which is why things like yellow fever and other mm-hmm. mosquito-borne diseases were able to outbreak the way they did. And then they're on this tiny island with the fort and they have to get those people that are yeah. infected away from everybody else or else it's going to just spread to everywhere. And I guess they were fortunate enough to have these outlying islands that they could make use of as mm-hmm. like quarantine outpost hospitals although i imagine it was a really you know unfun situation to be in (laughs) at one of those outlier islands but yeah 
Yeah, the other islands around there were used by the, essentially by the, I guess the Navy. Yeah. Uh, during the Civil War. Yeah. To act as not just support for the fort, but what they called a naval coaling outpost, which I think is actually making the coal Make it, yeah. that they use to, to burn in, in naval ships. Right. A lighthouse station at one point, and then military training, of course. Yeah. Yeah. All this means there's just a lot of people, a lot more people than you would expect for a really yeah. remote island. Remote, especially in terms of the you know 1800s. Yeah, for sure. So the area where they found the headstone has been well documented, and the park is going to continue monitoring it. But it doesn't sound like they're going to do any further excavation or exploration, really, to find out what other resources might be there because there's just no need to disturb it. It's probably mm-hmm. it's probably pretty safe, un- yeah. you know, underwater in a protected area. So there's really no need to do any more excavation. But they. It does sound like they are going to try to continue doing like the historical research aspect of yeah, it that sure, they don't not? need to do excavation for. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's some pretty decent maps out there somewhere. Oh that yeah, show this. I mean, it was military. Yeah, so, true. Yeah, and then also, much like you, you may have seen some of these articles, but there's at least one frame of a fairly large boat that was discovered off the coast of Florida. I want to say it was near Daytona. We didn't have this article up, but it mm-hmm. was somewhere around in there. And it was uncovered as a result of recent hurricanes. Oh, yeah. And that's more than likely why this headstone appeared when nobody had actually seen it before. Mm-hmm. Is because, you know, the the it's not very deep there. No, and the sand yeah. is constantly shifting because of yeah. these natural factors. The natural erosion, the hurricanes moving sand around. Yeah. So it is entirely possible that something could get uncovered at some point mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, no we need to get in there and either cover it back up or take care of this because it's just not going to, it's not protected. It's not safe anymore for it. Right. All right. Well, that's pretty much all we've got this week. We'll be back next week with more news articles or something. Or something. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by... Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.